everybody. This is your host, Aram Mokumuf, and you're listening yet to, ne- to yet another episode of the Product Innovation Show. Uh, today, I'm joined here by Martin Van Cronenberg. Uh, he is the founder of BW Ventures. Uh, his company implements and executes innovation funnels to create commercially successful innovations. So I'm personally very excited to have this conversation with you today, Martin, because I'm a strong believer in the importance of good discovery, good you know, product validation, uh, so I know that that's what you focus on in your business, uh, and that's what we're going to be really talking about today in a lot of detail. So, yeah, I'm really excited for this one. Thank you. I'm excited as well. Thank you for having me. I'm looking cool. forward to All this right. conversation. Oh, yeah, cool, cool. Likewise. All right. So, uh, just to kick things off, you know, me and you had a chance to connect uh, before this podcast, and you were telling me about this interesting story when you were, I think building up BW Ventures, uh, you know, early on. And I think you guys decided to go and buy actually a web and app development company um, at, uh, you know, at that point in time in, in your company's uh, period. And so I'd love to know why, why that was, why that didn't work out for you. Yeah, that, let's reframe that a little bit. It didn't just not work out. It was a horrible mistake. So let's set the stage here. Um, so let me go back a little bit. Uh, further down the road, um, I started BW Ventures about seven to eight years ago uh, with my co-founder, and my co-founder back then was also my external thesis assessor. Uh, assessor. So I wrote a thesis about how to you know grow new value propositions based on practices like lean startup, customer development, design thinking, all that sort of stuff, and I created a sort of a melting pot of that. And um, we decided that we could run programs, especially in the beginning, focused on startups, uh, so that we can help startups, well, build their first, um, uh, build and test their first business model, uh, and especially earnings model. And after that, they could build the actual product. So we assumed, hey, it would be a good thing to buy a web and app development um, agency because. Hey, if they validated something, then why not just make the product itself as well? That was pretty naive and pretty, well, let's put it like this, um, stupid to think. And the, the weirdest thing of all, we are, it's in our DNA to validate everything that we do, but we didn't validate this idea for our own. So we just saw this opportunity. We saw a company that was out there that was for sale. We could strike a good deal because we had a good deal. But from the literally the moment we signed, the biggest customer dropped. After that, we couldn't um, close any startups or any corporate startups into you know literally going uh, into the development part. So we couldn't upsell them. And then we started to somehow manage a uh, more of an SME company uh, servicing SMEs, which is a completely different ballgame than corporate startups, corporate venturing or startups. And as a result, um, me and my co-founder split. Um, I needed to liquidate the company um, and yeah, we lost a lot of money there, like a lot of money. Um, And the biggest learning there is, even though you know very, very well how to validate concepts, 
if you're in it yourself, your emotions gonna take you everywhere because you just think, ah, this is a great opportunity. In Dutch, we say this is there's this big rose cloud that you sit in. Everything looks pink, right, and uh, and and fluffy, and then well, the 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 reality kicks in, um, and yeah, a lot of money lost, liquidated a company. Um, uh, and about three to three and a half years of you know BW Ventures was just gone because we couldn't work and I couldn't work on BW Ventures as well. Oh, that's crazy! And so I'm curious. You you said something that I want to uh, follow up on, which was that when you bought the company, mm-hmm. you started having either a client drop or uh, you had issues with like, the sales side. So what was the main challenge? Like, did they not like this? new service offering or what what happened i i don't even think it had something to do with the client i think it had something to do with the previous management which was not really managing it anymore and the speed in which we wanted to buy this company i had like chats for three minutes with developers that's that was my due diligence that's not a due diligence right so I also couldn't assess how well the clients were there, um, uh, how well they were uh, serviced, how well the developers and, and sort of marketeers which were in there could, could really help also with the corporate kind of clients, etc., and the startup kind of clients. So basically everything that you read in a book that you should do, we didn't do. Crazy. Yeah. Right. Cool. <laughs> and so just couple more questions on this specific conversation so what did you realize was hard about managing a tech team versus like your core business yeah very good question because it's something that i learned back then and i can still apply every day um so tech teams want to they literally want to buy but sorry, they literally want to build, not buy. They want to build a product. Um, that's what they're trained for. That's that's everything they think about. And they, most of them, and and don't get this like don't say everyone does that, but most of them think in features. They think in more specifications, and it's never good enough to launch. While our main business, our core business, is we don't buy, uh, sorry, we don't build anything. We first let customers commit to something. And then gradually we start to build something with the mindset everything that will be built right now can be thrown away in like two weeks or in a month or in three months. But we need to first make sure that there is a sort of value stream running meaning you know financial uh, financials are going through your company and making sure that they um, they experience the value that they pay for and on the surface this seems like yeah but we also run design sprints to learn more about our customers and to create the best features etc etc but um, that has a lot to do with like product development and you know building a perfect product for potential customers but what we are focusing on is building the business around that because there's more than just the product 
And um, my key takeaway there is, for me, it's quite hard to manage tech teams because I'm looking at way more perspectives than just the product itself. And I think that is my biggest learning, meaning I will uh, never say never, but um, what I've learned, I will not be really managing product teams. You need you need a really good CTO or um, a product owner that you know can run a small team um, that focuses on product development, but make good connections with the CTO or with the product owners um, and talk about where you want to go, what you need from them to deliver on the promise you made to customers. And that is, I think, the most crucial thing that I've learned. Interesting. And so it's my understanding that now you're focusing, so A, you're not doing any of the builds, but B, you're not working with more startups, you're actually going more corporate. Yep and ventures so what was that what did you discover that you're better at or you know reason why you decided to focus bw ventures on just more enterprises so um we started as a as a sort of pre-acceleration program for startups uh, as i just mentioned and when we started out that was very new as in not a lot of um accelerators and incubators were there in especially Western Europe, uh, uh, particularly the Netherlands. Um, so we could, you know, we could create a market because, but because of this sort of buying of another company, we completely lost our, our uh, top position there. And uh, there were popping up incubators literally everywhere. The smallest village has an incubator here. And yeah, I mean, it's good in some ways, but on the other hand, I don't see the added value of that. Um, so that was one part of, you know, what, what I was thinking about this, this will not work. I still do see that I can add a lot of value with this process and literally this other way of thinking with regards to building new value propositions and building new companies. but. The other end was um, it's super hard as a consultant to make your money with startups. Um, it's the easy route. Me, yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, it's still it's great fun because the, the dynamics are completely different. Um, um, but you need to have like seven to, to 10 years to really make uh, uh, a living out of that. And um, I think, you know, the opportunities that I spotted uh, once I started to really validate our own business model again, because, you know, after that whole um, peep show, <laughs> um, I, um, I got like half a year to, uh, from my investors to revalidate our own model. And that is where I figured out that a lot of corporates, in, especially in Europe, um, have trouble building new value propositions or businesses. So not within their core business, but the adjacent business parts. And if they want to invest in startups or collaborate with startups, you know, the trouble there is almost the same thing. The great part of that is the solution, how I can solve that issue is, is exactly the same thing. So I, I'm still working a lot with startups. But now 
they've got the funding from corporates or VC funds that we work for. Um, and that, you know, also when you find something that really works, you can really hit um, uh, the acceleration pedal and, and, you know, do a lot of stuff because you're not too focused on raising money first and all the other parts. Yeah, that's interesting. So you really act as that bridge, uh, in some cases, between a corporate innovation division and like the startups who uh, can be brought in to support some of like the agendas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah, and and if I could go one level deeper there, if you look at innovation from a corporate perspective, I think there are four tools. Um, you can invest in startups or scale uh, scale ups. Um, you can create your own ventures, so corporate venturing. Uh, you could do joint ventures, uh, like the, the Philips Dow Egbert is a very um, uh, big one in the Netherlands or in Europe. Um, and last one, you can just buy companies, right, uh, using M&A uh, uh, thing. And these are the sort of four tools within our tool set uh, once we want to start or, or build uh, new companies for, for corporate organizations. Okay. Okay. Cool. Uh, all right. So jumping into the the main beef of our interview today. So I think thanks thanks so much for like the background in terms of like BW Ventures, how you got here, why why you're doing what you're doing, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, so the next while of the conversation, I really want to focus on I think f four of the main topics that we discussed before, which was how do you go from idea. Uh, to first commitment from customers, right? Um, so four main parts, you know, I want to go through is idea, right? Uh, what is an early stage idea creation process look like? Like what's involved and things like that. Then validation, first customers, you know, how do you get them? Where do you find them? How do you get them? And then obviously, uh, I think stakeholder management, because, you know, we've worked a lot with enterprises and corporates and there's a, too many people to manage and involve and decision-making slow. So I'd love to know how you kind of tackle that. So let's start off with the idea part. Um, so let's start from like, you know, day zero. What does early idea stage creation look like for like your customer? Yeah. So uh, we've got two types of customers. The ones that don't have an ID uh, and don't know where to source the IDs. And we've got the companies that have long lists of IDs. Last one, uh, the last one is a little bit easier for us because we can just help them filter out, okay, which IDs are um, more aligned with your strategy uh, and we can help them set up um, the right selection criteria. Uh, so the the ideas that they're gonna validate are really aligned with strategy later on once we're talking about stakeholder management this is pretty important um and these long lists uh, yeah some of them are good some of them are very bad um my my main thing is don't put too much time and effort in ideation uh, because the only thing that can happen the, the worst thing that can happen is that you completely fall in love with the ID, uh, build huge business cases, huge plans, and the moment you start validating, nothing becomes true, literally nothing. And um, that's not gonna help anyone. So 
what we do, um, we basically have three things that we think are super important uh, in the ideation phase. First, make sure you can fill in a lean canvas by Ashmaya. It's, it's such an easy tool and it's focused on getting your first idea on paper. So not the business model canvas, because it's for a different phase. It's, it's later on in your process. The in the ideation phase, just fill in a lean canvas and you can, you can fill that in within 20 to 30 minutes. If you're not able to do that, probably it's gonna be quite a challenge later on as well. Then the second thing, and well, hence this is also by Ash, uh, this is also designed by Ash Maya, but it's a small traction model. So if we are looking at the potential customers that we think have specific problems that we can solve, let's do a sort of super quick and dirty estimation of how big this customer group can be in the focus area that we are focusing on, for example, United States or New York or um, in Europe, maybe just a city or a region, but do, do a quick estimation. And then literally on one notepad, you can, you can write out how many customers you think you need in the first three years to, to at least get a model that could break even or has the potential to scale. Also that shouldn't take longer than an hour. And sorry, just a question. What's what's the what's the purpose for doing that? Is to see like the TAM or like how big the market could be for that target? Base? Yeah, is there a market? You know, uh, um, is the market potential at first glance good enough to even go into that market, especially for corporate um, uh, in innovation? Startups for me is a little bit different. Don't do that exercise because you've got a vision, you've got your first plan, now build a team. For a corporate, because stakeholders are gonna look at this, they see, oh, it, we can't scale that to a million users. So why do this? Why even put more energy in that? But if we can, if we can figure that out in like an hour and the ID isn't big enough, then leave it. Take your long list another ID. Third criterion that I think then is super important, the most important, okay, we've got a lean canvas, we've got a traction plan that both, you know, go through our selection criteria. Now we need to set up a team. A set of uh, a team typically consists of a maximum of three people in our case, and all of them need to be um, willing to talk to complete strangers. If, you, if you're not able to do that, then it's not going to fit. Hence why also most of the developers are in, this is not their best skill set. Um, so that, that is important. And we've got a lot of, you know, helpful tools that can see if that fits within that certain stage. But within corporate organizations, again, these people need to have time to work on this, you know, 20 hours a week, because otherwise you can't pass a good validation uh, process. So that's the third part that we put in ideation. And, you know, you can you can set that up in, in like two weeks in the span of a few hours. And if, if you pass that, that's ideation. Don't put more time into that because everything is going to change. Everything. Okay. So 
step one, do the lean canvas. Step two, uh, create like an estimate um, for potential traction. And then three is the team. So if you look at those three components and say you were talking about like the latter, which is like, you know, a company has already ideas. So does the team with you kind of go through that process and try to kind of grade that ideal list against some sort of a scorecard to see which ones to pursue? Yep. Like, how does that yeah, work? Th that's exactly the case. We create scorecards, um, uh, mostly based on the strategy that a company has. Um, um, because otherwise you, you just create a sort of um, scorecard for every company, you know, that, that's the same for everyone that doesn't work. So you need to, you need to focus it on their strategy. Um, but that process, we facilitate the process. We don't put the IDs in. They need to write out the IDs, but we can help them score it and, and you know, sort of check, is your process right? And if that process is right, we can start the actual validation process. Okay. And so just before we get to the validation, mm -hmm. what do you do in a situation where a company's like, I don't know what to do. I don't have any ideas. Yeah. First things first, we start talking to customer uh, success managers and we start to talk to sales. They are for me, the biggest source of IDs. Um, and after that, we tend, we sometimes tend to talk to the boards. Um, but that, that, that depends a little bit, um, especially customer success customer support and sales, they've got a lot of IDs. They, they are the ones that literally hear everything from potential customers. The, the challenge there is don't focus too much on, you know, core innovation. So product optimizations. Um, but if you listen carefully, you can get some inspiration out of, you know, adjacent or, you know, horizon two type of innovations. It's interesting though, because like, yeah, I, I agree. I think customer success people know what people are asking for. Sales know situations where like, okay, like customer would buy from us if we had this feature or whatever, right? But don't you think at the same time, um, they might be, it's not biased, but like they might not know how to like actually think through the use cases properly for those type of things and like they, might be more focused on maybe like, okay, for example, with customer service, mm -hmm. if the customer has this, then I might be getting less customer support tickets about the stupid problem. Or a salesperson could like, if I had this, mm -hmm. then I'll be able to sell more yep. and make more money. Yep. <laughs> right? Uh, so I'm just curious about like, if there's any kind of like, potential biases there versus speaking to the actual customers. They're completely biased. But it's our job to um, at least be aware of these biases and talk to more than just one salesperson or one customer success or customer support, uh, support uh, manager. Um, because the you know most of the of the corporate and enterprise organizations have data about that, and if you start talking about that, you can you can get the ideas out. Don't ask them. To, um, to think about potential business ideas. You just want to hear what are the, the things that you hear most. 
because if you start asking them okay what could the potential future business be like and that sort of thing then you get into all the biases and and they they get sort of threatened and all that sort of stuff that that that's not what you want to do there the only thing that you want to do is listen so what do you hear often you know lately with customers what are sort of trends or why what are the most heard objections right now um, and um, uh, with customer uh, customer success or customer support, what what is withholding them to really get the value out of the products that we try to deliver to them? And what are they stuck at? What what is going on there? Do you see a particular group that has something there? It's just an open conversation, and um, uh, if you do that with the board, then. Um, my biggest questions will always be what do you fear the most who's your nightmare competitor yeah it's interesting with the board though do, do you ever feel there's that kind of like they're too far away from like the the from like the the bottom line like I'm sorry mm-hmm. not the bottom line what I'm trying to say is like sometimes when I come across the board you know, in terms of conversations with our clients, I just feel they're too disconnected from like reality and they might not know what's happening at like the, you know, sales level or the customer support level. It depends on the company uh, and especially on the company culture. Uh, So sometimes they are fully aware of everything that happens. Uh, Sometimes they're quite disconnected um i don't i still don't see you know what makes a difference i think it has a lot to do with the company culture there um what i do find way more interesting with if you're talking to boards um if you you understand their top worries their top fears you get all the attention um and especially in the past five years a lot of innovation labs were being built that were just i'm sorry to say this but they were just playing around and they were burning through a lot of money and if the you know if the board gets too much of this playing around without building actual businesses they're gonna you know they're they're gonna quit they're not gonna give you any attention anymore uh, so if you understand what you know, what is in their minds, what what they are worried about, and you can help them at least get a better grasp of that reality with validation, etc., then you can get their attention, their 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 resources, etc. So um, uh, yes, it's an important part of the, that whole conversation, but in, it's it's a balance between the two, um, and. Uh, for me, there's no strict process there. It it, it it ranges from company to company. Yeah, that's so true. A good example actually came across on LinkedIn. I can't remember who said it, but it was one CRO speaking to another CRO at a large, uh, large enterprises. And the guy was pitching him on like his company and his services. And the guy said to him some wisdom, and the guy shared to him some wisdom. He's like, he's like uh, you should be really trying to tell me where I'm not seeing things or where I'm not seeing like the next opportunity or what am I not considering that's happening in the market or where I will be in six months 
because like when you strike as you said like with the board if you strike that fear or that like mm -hmm. missing out or like they're doing something wrong they're gonna you know waste a lot of money that that triggers them a lot more because they're more like return on investment kind of focused to, you know individuals yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah so so true yeah um okay cool so we talked about idea uh, so obviously there's two different paths, you know, as you elaborated. So let's talk about validation. So, so you get an idea, you went through that scorecard, um, you've classified, okay, these are our top three ideas or, or I don't know, however many you decide yep. to take on, right? Uh, what happens next? How do you, how do you go validate it? So we usually use a five-step process. Um, and, uh, first things first, um, we we do this in around three months that's something different than a week i'm going to explain why i think it needs to take three months instead of a week first things first we need to do problem discovery and i think most of your listeners also know what problem discovery is but problem discovery in my opinion cannot be done with talking to five people what we do um is we structure between five to seven experiments and an experiment in that phase is again talking to customers talking to potential customers and users and other people in the ecosystem that you will be researching so what do i mean with an ecosystem typically there's an end user in the middle and they're influenced by, for example, other people in the company, or if it's in another market, by other institutions. And we want to understand what the bigger picture of that problem is. Typically, that results in one big problem, about uh, three to five sub-problems, and that, based on that, you can build an actual problem tree. And the problem tree is going to tell you what the cause and effect relationship is between, for example, a top problem and sub problems. Now, why is that important? Sometimes the big problem that everyone experiences can be fixed by just getting away one sub problem and all the dominoes, you know, fall. It's, it's solved. Mm. The other part of going, doing proper like real proper problem discovery is we've got a rational idea of what the problem is and we've got a lot of emotional things attached to that so frustrations or maybe even happiness if it's solved you know but we we need to understand the emotional part of that as well more on that later especially once we start signing first customers but these two things need to be understood very very well um well that phase takes about five to six weeks it's it's the most important part it's again you talk to about 50 to 70 people because you run five to seven experiments so that's a lot right it, it sounds like a lot but that's why we've got you know you need to help people uh sorry you need to help people structure the experiments um, reach out to people um and get into the in, in the conversation people don't want to talk about that problem they're never gonna buy a solution from you because they don't even want to talk about the problem okay so so just a, a question uh, you know how how similar or different are these experiments 
and then how do you go about finding these people to speak to um so first question first um the first experiment that you set up is quite general uh you know it's it's a top scan what are things that are top of mind and what in the specific idea that you want to do is a is an actual problem then in the experiments afterwards you start to you know divert into that ecosystem so uh, you talk to pe potential people out of the DM, uh, dmu the decision making unit out of the end users but also potential uh, partners or um, uh, people in the in the value chain then um, the further you get into that problem discovery phase the deeper you go into there you're going to quantify how many times something happens what it costs what you know so you get deeper and deeper into the core of that problem and the sub problems um, and why don't you just do that in one conversation because you're discovering you you can't find that one problem immediately and you want to have a broad conversation set to really get you know get the hang of that and understand it mm -hmm. second part actually that's quite a lot of um uh call acquisition tactics that you use um but the funny part here is you're researching something you're not selling anything mm. and if it's truly a problem that is worth solving people want to talk about that um, I'm always surprised by how much people tell about the actual problems that they experience. They're just going to talk and keep on talking. It's, it's more of a job to, you know, keep them in the conversation and set the boundaries with regards to time than, you know, not getting any answers out of that. Yeah. So you're saying that since you're not selling anything, you're not selling a service. You're just purely doing a research approach. It's like, hey, you know, I want to, you know, address these problems or talk about these problems. And then you're just saying it's like just waterworks. It just flows out of people. Exactly. And um, so, what do you look for, you know, in those conversations? Like, what are like the key underlying, maybe triggers or statements? Yeah, that's uh, also a good question. Um, let me think of a sort of quick example here, uh, because that makes it easier to understand. Um, yeah, so one of the very, very first projects that we've helped, it's a super easy project, but it, it's easy to, you know, explain this whole thing. They wanted to introduce a last minute ticketing uh, sort of concept for festivals. So if you buy last minute ticketing, you get higher discounts because there are a lot of festivals that don't sell out and you've got people that at the last moment want to do something. So what you want to learn there is, hey, last time you went to a festival, can you tell me a little bit more about how that process worked? What was your biggest problem before you got there? How did that work out? How did your ticket, you know, buying ticketing, uh, sorry, buying your tickets, etc., work out? And why did you do it then and not at some other moment? So in this case, what we learned is that a typical um, festival visitor buys their ticket as soon as possible 
purely based on one one person within a group that says hey we should go there it's always almost almost the same person maybe you should refer to your own group of friends there's always this one guy or girl that says hey this is a perfect festival we need to go to and then the rest just buys as quickly as possible because there is a social pressure that they they want to be there that's what you learn out of such a conversation Within, in this case, we had two experiments to, to really get to this, this conclusion, but that, that invalidates the complete idea of last minute ticketing for festivals. Because they want to buy as quickly as possible, and that's where the pressure is. Now, it, because in this case, we didn't kill the project, what we learned, and this was purely sort of coincidence that we, that we figured this out. But there were two people that actually had problems planning a festival or a trip. The coincidence there was that both of these people were very young parents with young children. We started to learn more about that and we found a list of problems that they walk into if they want to go somewhere especially if they have young children no inspiration not knowing what to do at specific times completely dependent on when the child wakes up when it goes to sleep etc etc so the easy thing they do is go to the grandparents go to the local sort of zoo um, and that's it that that's literally their world so we started to dive into there and build something for that however strategically not aligned with what they wanted to do at first but that that gives you a, a little bit of an idea of what you were looking for into these conversations so you want to listen with an, with an open mind and in the background validate if the problems that they have can potentially be solved with an ID that you have that's that's the main thing that you want to focus on in problem discovery okay okay yeah thanks for that example yeah it's enlightening I have three kids so I know the problem <laughs> when it comes to uh, freaking going to a festival like, I gotta find where to put them uh, <laughs> uh, so just with the validation, you were saying it's a five, you know, there's final yep. five steps. The biggest focus that takes, you know, five to six weeks is the problem definition. So what happens next? Solution discovery. And solution discovery, in my opinion, has nothing to do with what competitors are doing. What you want to learn is what are the existing alternatives that people use to actually solve the problems that they now have because we learn what problems they have but now we need to understand what their current state is so how do they try to solve it right now do they even have a solution that doesn't mean that there needs to exist a solution but what do they use what do, what do they you know pick up where they, they do they go looking for that solution and that's going to learn you a lot about what the sort of range of um or or not really range what kind of areas you need to look for for proper solutions that, that that can help them in the end what you will get out of that phase is first their desired state so where do they want to go to what you know what do they want to get out of a solution and the second part is how 
can you create a 10x solution? So that's from Peter Thiel, right? How can you be 10 times better, cheaper, faster, quicker, whatever it may be compared to their existing alternatives? Okay. And in that phase, it's it's again three to so it's three to four experiments. You talk to thirty to forty people in these conversations because you're still discovering discovery, um, and that that's going to take you about two weeks because you you know you can call back people that you've spoken to before. You get referred to other people because the snowball of talking to more and more people is rolling there. Is it the same people you speak to from the problem definition and the solution discovery? Sometimes, yes, but we try to, you know, get a mixture there. So 50% of people that we've already spoken to and 50 new uh, kind of people that, that, you, that weren't in your process before. Okay. So then once you do solution discovery, you're kind of doing, I think, I'm assuming next, like sense making, where you're going through the problem problem definitions, the solution discovery, and then you're trying to see, okay, what did we learn? Yeah. So maybe you could explain that a bit more. Yeah. So uh, especially if you start a solution discovery interview, you you first phrase the problems that you figured out and you want to you, you want to sort of um, let them validate that again. Yes, I, I completely agree. I've, and then they come up with examples and then you start talking to them. Okay, but how did you solve that? What did you do there? And why did it work out? What did you hate about that solution? What can you do you think could be improved? And have you maybe thought about something else, but that, you know, you didn't have the budget or something like that? Um, and um, yeah, that it, it, it teaches you so much about w how they think about their own solution. So what I always state, if people think in hardware solutions, a software solution won't always, you know, cut it for them. Um, but if they if they already think about, you know, that sort of software thing, maybe you could just go in and, and create better software for that. Don't try to change their full behavior into something else because that that's super hard. Okay. And then, so after you go through the solution discovery, you do some sense making, what happens next? prototyping and here I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna mess with a lot of hats <laughs> because prototyping for us is not you know creating a product uh, but I want to prototype a first value proposition we've learned a lot we we just listened we didn't pitch anything now we can get to our original ID see what still stands you know you just have that link canvas and you can see what still is there figure out and, and and see how we can get the potential customer from their current state with all their problems to their desired state because we've got all the information that can help them get there in the prototyping phase what you want to do is write out that one promise what is the promise that i need to make towards that customer potential customer sorry that is really gonna help them get towards that new desired state. You also put a sort of business model to that because if you know we've quantified the problems, we the problems. We also learned what kind of other solutions they use that are not working for them, 
And that's also quite some, you know, validation on what are they losing or what are they spending on other solutions. And that will be the range that could, you know, for, especially for your first customers, um, uh, is what they will be willing to pay for something. And as a rule of thumb that I always use, but that's something that I've learned in the past year, especially I started experimenting with that. What if you could put just a 10% of the actual cost that they're making right now, and you, char you charge just 10% of that. If your operational costs, etc., could, you know, if, you, if you're able to fix that for that 10%, the cost of switching is so low that most of them don't even think about the price. Uh, and later on, you can experiment with either going up or down, but that's a good rule of thumb in that in that phase. So in that prototyping phase, that's where you really get the first sort of validated IDs out into a pitch, not in a product, into a pitch. So when you say pitch, what do you mean? Like, do you create something, or is like, do you create like a clickable prototype, or do you actually just? present it back to people mm. like here, here's my pitch yeah there's no code written so that's the prototype the yeah. prototype is literally a pitch back yeah wow okay and sometimes it's literally a powerpoint presentation with all the elements in and the id that you have you know how how it's going to work out sometimes there is a small mock-up but that's only in the cases if there's already you know technology built but they couldn't find a market for that so yeah if it's there you know put it in your page i mean it's there um but typically there's nothing there no mock-up no nothing the only thing that you have is a powerpoint or a video or just a written out pitch for yourself that you can go go and call back to the people that you've spoken in problem discovery and in solution discovery and mention, hey, I want to come back to you with all the research that I've done. And I think I've got a solution for the problems that you've experienced. So if you've got 10 minutes, please listen to what I figured out. This is how we think we can help you. What I need from you is a commitment onto this pitch. That's the pitch MVP phase, so that's phase four. Mm -hmm. Meaning, a commitment can be in sort of various levels. The lowest level is, hey, send me an email once you start launching. For me, that's not really a commitment. Yeah. Highest form of, uh, of, of commitment is someone just signing a contract or prepaying for your solution. What we strive for is a minimum of a, a, a letter of intent, but the letter of intent is written out, hey, we've had this conversation. In that conversation, we talked about the actual problems that you experience. You could just put that in. We will solve that by uh, developing a product in the upcoming six months to a year, for example. And in that product feature A, B, C, and D will be in there because A, B, C, and D will actually help you solve that problem. If the product is there, you will start paying for that service or product with the amount that you put in the business model, right? Then, for example, if it's gonna be a subscription model, don't let them sign for one month. It, it doesn't make sense, you're not really validating. 
if it's a if it's a subscription model let them sign for a year because then you really understand if what you have figured out is going to match what they want now here's the interesting thing because now it's you're getting into sort of phase five um, to round off phase four we do about 10 to 20 pitches and in practice what we've learned you know over the years when we started out doing this process we were managing to convert about 40 percent of the people we pitched to into a signed loi or contract in the past year and this is quite ridiculous but in the past year we managed to optimize that process and get into uh, 79 percentage of everyone that is being pitched to signs the actual uh, letter of intent of or or contract so we're getting better at this mm-hmm. um, clearly yeah. now what does this what's the ideal of this the, the ideal outcome is that you have commitments and it's a sort of mutual promise because you promise that you are going to solve that issue with creating the right features they promise that they will pay once it's there now you can create a business case that is actually um, based on actuals you know you you you've got people that commit to that price you understand what you need to develop to deliver on that promise and get the first dollars or euros out there and especially for your first year it's easier to create a business case not all the risk is out because you can't you know you can't do risk the full business case and it's not going to be predictable yet but you've got more validation than just you know launching a product team building you know building something probably costing a million or even more um, without knowing what people want to pay for that and that, that that's what you're doing there in that phase and then in the business case phase yet yeah, it's, it's it's easier to first you know get more resources because you know what you're asking and on the other hand you understand what you can get in return from potential customers and these two could really help get the id and the business case across without you know taking a lot of risk yeah it's interesting and so when you do these uh, pitches um is it mostly that you try to get people to commit to like say a year on a SaaS agreement, you know, when the product's ready or do you like do like, what's like the majority of like the, the, like the levers you pull on? Is it like, is it that, is it like you get some credits for when this launches, uh, you get 50% off when it launches or whatever. No, just pure like commitment. Like give me one year commitment. Okay. I love that. That's what I always say to people. Like I need a financial commitment. That's like, really tangible and noteworthy yeah. because everything else is just like Mickey Mouse yeah the, the only thing that you test if you give them a discount is you know do they commit to the discount and not to the actual you know price yeah. and I know uh, I mean once you really start launching and you really start people get you know into that first phase you can still say hey um we're almost there but we want to have your learnings already you can already use the first you know uh beta version etc you can get a discount right now for 50 percent. but then you're learning while you know running all the design sprints to optimize features and all that sort of stuff 
Um, but in the first phase, you want them to commit to the full price because that's what you want to learn, not not all the all the other discount uh, kind of stuff. Question on the LOIs: Like I've been in situations where I do binding LOIs or not, or like non-binding LOIs. Like yep. Obviously, binding LOIs are so much more meaningful and valuable. Is that what you yep. typically go for? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Something a bit more concrete. Yeah, I've learned that the hard way. <laughs> yeah, because like sometimes like anybody could sign any yeah. paper as long as it's like non non-committal, right? Yeah, the um, idea there is that you go through the actual decision-making process. Yeah, together. Yep. Yeah. Okay, and then um, when you're doing these uh, pitches, do you do them like majority to the people that you've been speaking to along the way, or do you then go and like have like a cold person that you haven't spoken to yet through this whole process just to confirm? That the pitch is like has legs you know there's no like maybe bias along the way because you built a relationship with somebody it's a mixture um a yeah and and i'm gonna be quite honest here uh on the one hand you need some success so just talk to people that you've already spoken to because otherwise morale in the team and in in everything is right. gonna drop dramatically and especially the first pitches if that's a success they're eager to get more then Fired yeah up. and then start talking to call you know just just call acquisition kind of things but you already know who experienced the problem what they experience and they're in that same bucket so still you can get quite high conver uh, you know conversion rates there yeah yeah okay cool so that's very helpful so i guess that's the third part which is like how to get the first customers that we, we want to talk yeah, about yeah definitely right? definitely um Okay, so then once you do that, you get those commitments. You say, I have 50 people who signed in this contract. I don't know if we should go into stakeholder management and quickly talk about that, but then what happens next? Um, I think this, has, this also has a lot to do with stakeholder management. So you've got the business case there. You've got people that, that signed, right? Uh, typically, I want to have at least 10 up to 20 people because that's also the range that you want to have in your launching or pre-launching or, or whatever kind of uh, uh, description we're going to put to that. But, you know, you just want to want to prove that the product actually solves the issues that you promised and that people pay for the other parts. So for me, that's a proof of business, right? There's there's business going around and you're actually you're actually solving something. But before you can get it, you can get there, you need to get the budget to build the first version or the MVP or uh, however you want to call that um, and um, that's where a lot of stakeholder management comes in so if you're doing this properly this is not going to be a big surprise for uh, for the board or higher management or the people that you at least get um, money from because um, um, during that validation pro program of like three months, you try to talk to them at least every three weeks, but optimized every two weeks. Just a conversation of half an hour. This is what we did. This is what we learned. We, we think it's going to go that direction. If you have something to comment, please do it now, because if you've, if you've got an assumption, we can already test that right now. Then the case is building up, building up, building up. And then because you know what kind of money you want from them, that's what you can ask there. Um, that's that's for like the more advanced people uh, doing validation. If you want to go pro level, what you do is 
before you even start validation programs, you've got budgets assigned to the two phases. So the pre-acceleration phase and the acceleration phase. If it's not going to cost you more than, for example, 250K for building the first version of the product, then there's a small investment committee or an innovation committee that just says, hey, you've got all the check marks that we want. Here's the budget, go build. And then if you need to scale, then you're really going into boards, etc., etc. Uh, so that's more of the structuring of the process. Talking about the stakeholder management, if people are having doubts about what you are doing and why things are not working out, you've got that, you, know, you hear that already in the, you know, bi-weekly meetings. So you've got, you can still gather proof that it works or doesn't work. If it doesn't work out like you think it should work, then just, just pull the plug because you can try to convince them, but it's your job to get to the harsh truth. And that's the only thing that helps everyone in stakeholder management. Inform them as early as possible. Keep them involved into that process on highs and on lows. And be super transparent about what you need. And if everyone aligns on the criteria that you want to get to, for example, 10 to 20 signed LOIs, binding LOIs, uh, if you understand what kind of budget ranges you can work into to, to launch that first version of that product, uh, product then there's nothing or no one that says, hey, uh, I'm completely out because we, we've discussed everything. We were very clear on what we want to do and get towards. And that's super important if you're working in something that's not predictable because what you're doing is not, it's not predictable. There's still a lot of risk in there. Um, but this helps to at least stage and phase out the unpredictability of what you're doing yeah i'm assuming you've been in situations where like you've had pushback from stakeholder management and or whatever there's a pivot uh or whatever happens you know along the way through you know the, definitely the, the process that we talked about um how many times have you actually killed the, the entire like idea or the project altogether versus pivoting to some other approach or some other angle? Depends on the company. So if there's a long list of IDs, I'd rather kill than pivot. Uh, okay. um, and that also depends on, on, do we have enough information to actually pivot? If it's, if there's not a long list of IDs and people are getting into innovation, then I'd rather pivot because you also want to give them a taste of success. Mm -hmm. Some win. Yeah. You want to see a win or something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so in your experience with stakeholder manager, what's like the main thing that they look for from a success or winning conditions? Is it number of LOIs, number of you know interested parties who are willing to pay for something? Like what's like that, you know, 
clear sign for yeah me. this is quite interesting i think but i think it's progress it, it has nothing to do with the amount of signed lois or or contracts or whatever they want to see progress they want to understand that you know what you're doing and they want to at least understand that you are de-risking the right things And to prove that, to back that up, you've got LOIs, your contracts, you've got all the conversations, etc., etc. Yeah. So people are most of the times too scared, in my opinion, to build a super big business case with all the numbers, all the information in there, because they think the you know decision makers are going to ask for that. Yes, a business case is important. Yes, it's important to understand the different scenarios. But showing progress and showing what works and doesn't work is more valuable than just getting that perfect business case out. Okay, cool. Oh uh, yeah, that's great, Martin. Thank you. Just a couple more questions. We'll wrap it up. Maybe fireside format. Try perfect. to try to think about like <laughs> one to two sentences for these ones. Okay. Um, so, in your experience with your you know knowledge and uh, track record so far, what are some one two key principles or lessons that you keep coming back to don't overspend on something you don't know uh, i don't like the whole unicorn principle there and that's why we call blue whale ventures bw ventures so is that what it stands yeah, for yeah, blue whale yeah, yeah that's what <laughs> i didn't know yeah. that um so you know f- if you if you can't sell the proposition, don't build anything. That that's the key principle for me. Um, and and stay lean there, stay super lean. Okay. And what is the most exciting part of your job, and why? Getting the first LOIs, getting the first commitments. That's where everything comes together. Yeah. Okay. And then last question. We talked about this briefly at the beginning, but what are like what's like one to two key things that corporates can consider when they decide to buy a company in terms of a good fit? Like what should they look for? Understand their own strategy and why they want to buy a potential target. Then understand what type of customer they want to serve with that and what their plan is to, um, to get it in their full portfolio in a full product or services portfolio uh, especially if you're if you're going into other markets if it's if it's a core related um, buy then don't use these these processes because you fully understand how it works but if you go into different markets then um, understand what you think it's going to solve what you can add there and how you can grow that into a sort of buy and build engine on their own and maybe i'm gonna be a little bit um how do you say that controversial no um Ah. (laughs) uh, maybe this is a topic for a potential next podcast because there's a lot of things we can talk about there as well and all the learnings that we we had there but that's up to you aaron um cool awesome martin uh thank you so much this has been great super super uh insightful i would say in terms of uh your knowledge and your approach so thanks for sharing that with me and you know the audience who's going to be listening to us and always thank you to our listeners for tuning in and supporting the show we are proud.